You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Well, we begin a new series together, and I want to go ahead and lay this out to you, if you will. This is going to be a very different uh, next 8 to 12 months for us, and and the reason being is because I'm not going to, uh, from my perspective, uh, or from your perspective, it might seem as though I'm communicating differently because I will, because ultimately this isn't a preaching series per se. It'll have preaching in it, obviously, but this is a teaching series. And so over the course of the next year, this will, believe it or not, invite interaction from you. Some interaction that might invite some questions to be answered and some things to be shared. Some interaction that might invite us to practice some things together when we gather we fall way too deeply into this trap that when we gather, you have to listen for 35 minutes while I talk, and you can't really interact. Um, you can interact in your heart and in your mind, maybe, through sort of a sort of silent dialogue with God, um, but, but it becomes, for the mon- most part, sort of a, a monologue sort of situation. And, and, and I think that that's okay at times, but for this series, for it to be effective, I think for us to get what God may want us to get out of it, it's going to require you to engage it. Now, not all of you have to. This isn't going to be one of those things where we start with John and we work our way across, you know, and, you know, everybody's scared and nervous because you don't... It's not like that. This is, I'm just saying that, that it may be a little different because this is a teaching series. And teaching is, in my opinion, different from preaching. And then teaching with the desire to have a conversation with God's people and with God is a different way of just teaching in the classroom setting. Uh, so... So I want to lay that out as sort of the greatest caveat so far because this series is called God's Story, Our Story, where we'll learn to listen, love, and live. And it's going to be one that focuses on spiritual practices. And so we may teach a spiritual practice one week and root it in Scripture because it needs to be biblically rooted, gospel-driven, and grace-centered, and and Holy Spirit-empowered. And then what we will do is the next week we will actually learn the discipline together. And then you will go on and you will, you will proceed to practice it in your life, hopefully. And hopefully you'll find out of the 18 spiritual practices that we learn together, you'll find one or two or three or four that really identify with how God has wired you. Because not everything is for everybody. There are introverts and there are extroverts. And then there are different levels of introverts and extroverts. And so there are spiritual practices that do not you know, necessarily uh, connect with the heart uh, of an introvert that it may connect with the heart of an extrovert. And so over this series, we're going to talk about 18 spiritual practices. But also over this series, we're going to talk about the seven pathways that many of us connect to God. And I'm going to throw a bunch of things out at you this morning sort of as an intro to give you an idea of just how broad sweeping this is. Um, we will literally cover Genesis to Revelation in some way, shape, form, or fashion in this series because it's rooted in the gospel, and that is the gospel. Now, we've taught through the book of Colossians. We've taught through great sections of Romans. Uh, we've taught through um, the Gospels and story accounts. So, so for those who are interested in this sort of thing, um, there will be expository preaching in this, meaning there will be great sections of text that we expose. Um, but, but this isn't going to be a, a book-to-book kind of discussion and kind of conversation. It's going to tend to be a little more topical with that exposition of, of a great chunk of text in the middle of it somewhere. Uh, and so I, I want to throw that out for those of you who are interested. For those of you who are not, just ignore the last two minutes of what I just said. And, um, and we'll move forward uh, from there. So as we kind of start this thing off together, I want to ask you a question. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? It's the good news. It's the good news. 
And that's exactly what it is, because gospel is the word for good news. But what kind of good news is it? And see, for some of us, we say, well, the gospel then is a plan. It's what we do to be saved. That's not the gospel. That's a response to the gospel. For some of us, the gospel uh, uh, includes a lot, of, a lot of different points. It talks about Jesus and, and his death and, and resurrection, and, and that becomes the sum total of the gospel. And I would submit to you that that is part of the gospel. And it's definitely part of the gospel, but that's not the full gospel. Because I understand the life of Jesus, to understand the good news, you've got to have an understanding of what the bad news is. And before you can understand the bad news and the good news, you kind of have to understand what God has been up to from the very beginning. The gospel is essentially a story about Jesus. The gospel, in its simplest terms, you could say the gospel is Jesus. But it's not just Jesus in the way that we often speak of Jesus. It's Jesus in the way the Scripture speaks of Jesus. And Scripture began speaking of Jesus in the very beginning. And so what I want to do is share with you the gospel. See, it all began with God. Where God made everything you can see and everything you cannot. God made the world to be his home. And he was calling this home the world. And it was going to be a world very much like a temple palace. Because it's a temple because God is the one who will live in this world in the beginning. But it becomes a palace because God is king. And so God then makes the very first people, and he places them in this world, in this temple palace, in a very beautiful place called the garden. And he wants them to live within this world, right within the garden. And he gives them a job to do, to love each other and to take care of the world, his temple palace, and to rule it well on his behalf. That was their job. But they didn't. They didn't do their job well at all. They didn't like doing things God's way and not theirs. So they listened to the devil who tempted them. And they took what wasn't theirs, and they tried to rule the world their own way. And in essence, they tried to be God. So the very first people had to leave the garden, and they had to leave God's presence. Without God, they began to die. But God never gave up on his people. He still loved them. He promised to renew and restore the world so he could share it with them again, but it wouldn't be easy. Everyone who's ever lived, from the very first people all the way to you and me, have gone the same way. We've all taken what isn't ours. We've all tried to do things our own way. We've all tried to be, whether we admit it or not, lowercase g, gods. And things just kept getting worse. But God had a plan. And God chose a man named Abraham. And he gave Abraham children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And God turned Abraham into a great nation. And he called this nation of his descendants Israel. And then Israel became God's chosen people. And, and God, they would help God restore and renew or, or fix the world. And God went with Israel everywhere they went. And when Israel was slaves in another country, God remembered them. And when they were treated badly, God rescued them. And God gave Israel a home. But he gave them a job to do. His job for them was simple, to show the world what it looks like to live as God, with God as king and to be God's people. So, so God gave them priests to teach them how to love God. And he, and he gave them laws to show them how to live underneath his rule and his reign and his love. And God told his people, if you follow me, you'll have a good life. You'll get to help me renew and restore the world. But Israel didn't listen to God. Instead, Israel did what they wanted to do. They took what wasn't theirs, just like the first people, and just like all of us. Eventually, Israel realized that they did not want God as their king. 
They wanted a king of their own, a person just like them, like every other nation around them. And so God gave Israel what they wanted. He gave them a king, and then he gave them another king, and then he gave them another king. Some kings were good, like King David, and then some were just bad, because mostly the kings did whatever they wanted to do. Mostly the kings ruled for themselves and not for God, and they took what was theirs, and they tried to be little gods. And so then God sent us prophets. He sent his prophets to help them understand that there's only one true king, and that true king is God. But the kings and their people did not want to listen to these prophets. And so then God had to force them to leave their home, just like Adam and Eve did in the beginning. And other nations came and conquered Israel and carried God's people off by force. As a result, Israel lost everything. And then there was silence. 400 years of silence. No one heard from God anymore. No priest, no prophet, no direct word from God. Until something brand new happened. And what happened is what God was trying to tell his people all along. See, God sent someone, a person just like us, except very different. Someone who could rule the world the way God wanted. God sent Jesus, his chosen one, the Messiah, the one that he had spoken of since Genesis chapter 3 to rescue Israel and to rescue and renew and restore the world. And so Jesus did good wherever he went. He, he healed the sick and he fed the hungry. He rescued people from all sorts of problems. Jesus did everything God wanted. But it wasn't what God's people wanted. They didn't want Jesus to be their king. They did not want the kind of kingdom Jesus would bring. So one day, some powerful people decided that they'd put a stop to Jesus before he took their power away. And so they arrested him, and they stripped him naked, and they beat him, and they made him bloody, and they shamed him, this man who did nothing but good, because they did not want what he had to offer, and they did not believe what he said he was doing with and for God. And so they nailed him to a cross, and they watched him die. Jesus didn't fight back. He didn't raise a sword or even raise his voice. And so the powerful thought they had won. And the devil thought he had won. They thought they had beaten this Jesus, who some did believe to be God's chosen one. But there was something no one understood, no one. They did not know that Jesus died, not because he had to, but because he chose to. They did not know that, like all of us, they deserve to die as we do for all the times we have gone our own way and ruined God's good world with our selfish and sinful, rebellious ways. They did not know that a servant's cross would eventually become his crown. They did not know that a servant's death would become his life and eventually become ours. This one true king had come and given his life for the world, but they did not know. But then God... The one who made the world, who rescued Israel, who sent Jesus. God raised Jesus from the dead. And then lots of people saw him alive. Over 500 people saw him alive before he went back to God. But, but Jesus didn't just raise from the dead. He defeated death. So it would have no power over us any longer. And so God gave us this king we needed. This king who had the power to do the things that needed to be done to bring true restoration and renewal to the world since we just couldn't make it happen. And this king who would make a way back to God since we certainly couldn't make our own. 
And then this king gave us a job to do. One very much like the job we received in the very beginning in the garden. To love each other with all we have. Because that's how we show others what it's like to be loved by God. And that's how we show others what it's like to serve our king. That's actually what it's like to show others what it looks like to live underneath the rule and reign and the love of God. So for now on, for now, just for now, the world is still broken, still waiting to be fully renewed and restored, but someday, someday our king, the one who overcame death, the one God sent and did everything he could not do, someday he's going to return. And when he returns, all of the things that hurt us will be done away. All of the need to bring renewal and restoration will be completed. One day Jesus will return and he will share his home with us again. Just like God intended in the beginning. Never again will anyone take what isn't theirs. This world will truly be a temple palace. And it will be like Revelation 22 verse 5 said, which happens to be the very last word in the Bible speaking directly about human life and destiny. It says this, Night will be no more. They won't need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will rule forever and always. Just like God intended in the garden. See, that's the gospel. It's the story of what God is doing in Jesus and for Jesus and through Jesus, unfolding in the world. It isn't just a plan of salvation that we invite people to. The plan of salvation is the invitation that, that is received from the gospel. The gospel is a story of God through Jesus. And it's a story that the Apostle Paul believes should change our life. It's a, it's a story, this gospel of King Jesus, that really does have power. Maybe the problem with some of us is we've grown too familiar with the story. See, so Paul says in Romans 1 verse 16, he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew because they'll understand the messianic side of this, and then to the Gentile because Jesus is king of the Jews and makes him lord of the universe. And that, that's the deal. And so Paul believed that somehow this gospel had power. And not only was this gospel the greatest story ever to be told to the unbeliever, that this gospel is still the greatest story to be told to the believer. See, for many of us, we think the gospel is for the unbelieving. But the gospel is for the believer, too. It's for the Christian. And that's why if you read the letters, and we talked about this in our Colossians series, you see Paul unpacking the gospel in almost every letter. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. Listen to this. You received it and have taken your stand on it. My question is, have you taken your stand on the gospel? If it's just a plan of salvation, then you've got a piece of it. But have you taken your stand on the great story of the gospel? Of what God is doing in His sovereignty and His grace and His mercy and His beauty all wrapped up in Jesus. And that Jesus is the King who brought in a kingdom that will one day usher in the fullness of this kingdom. This is a beautiful story. It's an urgent story. It's a rich story. So Paul says this. He says, you are also saved by the gospel if you hold to the message I proclaim to you unless you believe for no purpose. And for I passed on to you what is most important that I also received. Now listen to this, please. Because here's where I get my understanding of the gospel starting in Genesis and not in Matthew. That Christ died for our sins, what is that phrase? According to the scriptures. 
According to what scriptures? The scriptures that prophesied that there would be a king who would come and make right what had been made wrong. Isaiah, for instance. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. What's the words? According to the scriptures. He's the one that scriptures have been prophesying about from the get-go. Genesis 3, when, when God said that he will send someone who will crush the serpent's head. And he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. See, Paul believed deeply in this gospel. He believed in the centrality of the gospel because the gospel is, in its very essence, Jesus. But it's the full story of Jesus. Not just the pieces we sometimes adapt. See, Paul wasn't the originator of the gospel. He learned his gospel from Scripture and how Jesus was the fulfillment of all things of all the prophecies, that he would be the messianic king from the line of David. But more succinctly, I guess you could say, Paul got his gospel from Jesus. See, Paul wasn't the only one who preached the gospel. Jesus preached the gospel. Yes, Jesus preached himself. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee preaching the good news, which literally means what? Gospel of God. The time is fulfilled. What time, Jesus? The time, what we've been speaking about since Genesis, people, is what he's saying. The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God has come near. Meaning that in him, God's kingdom is present. He says this is the gospel. And so Jesus is preaching himself as king and calling that gospel. And then he says, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. See... This gospel elicits a response. This gospel calls for a response. So, so when you say that, well, what's the gospel got to do with the spiritual practices that we're going to teach? It has everything to do with the spiritual practices. Because without understanding the gospel, we have no desire to respond to God, really. So the gospel has to precede everything we do. So Jesus calls for a, res a response to the gospel, which Paul said was power. And Jesus calls for the response to repent and believe in the good news. To turn away from something and turn towards God and believe. To trust that what God says is true, what God says about you is true. Repent and believe. Another way you could say that is to listen. To listen and obey. The gospel is God's story. And God's story is intended to be our story, church. A story that not only involves us, but includes us. It is a story that, that shaped the movement that we call Christianity, that shapes and gave life to the church. It's a story that should give shape to all we do. It's a story that should renew our minds. It's a story that should strengthen our souls and form our hearts. And it's a true story, a story that invites us, involves us, and includes us. And includes us because we're not only to receive the gospel, not only to declare the gospel, but we're also to demonstrate the gospel to the people who do not know the gospel. We are to also learn what it means to be good news to the world. And how we love, because remember, King Jesus gave us a job to do. To enjoy him, and in enjoying him, put his love on display. But it is a story that should change us. My question is, what is changing you right now? What is changing you? Are your circumstances changing you? Are the narratives of your life changing you? The stories of your life, narrative stories. Are the narratives of your workplace changing you, shaping you, molding you? Are the narratives of your marriage changing you, shaping you, molding you? Are the narratives of your school situation and your friendships changing you, 
molding you, shaping you? Are the narratives of your parenthood changing you, shaping you, molding you? Or is it the gospel that is changing you and shaping you and molding you? See, Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He said, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. We're going to learn what it means to present our bodies. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by, everybody read it with me, please, the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. The renewing of your mind precedes a transformation that we all desire. So what narratives are you telling yourself? What stories are you embracing and owning? I had someone just last week tell me to stop embracing certain stories of my life. And start embracing the God story. She didn't say it quite like that, but boy, she said it. My question. See, here's the thing. As I spend time with people, so many people, and talking about life and faith and following Jesus, I'm growing increasingly convinced that, that, that people's inability to change isn't merely their lack of desire or effort. I find that most people do want to change. Most people want to live intimately with God. Most people want to mature in their faith. Now, some of you don't. Some of you do not want what God asks. And some of you don't, do not want what God offers. But, but I'm saying for the most part, I think that, that there are those who, who want transformation in their life. So I'm growing increasingly convinced that the problem is not that we do not want to change or that we are not trying to change. Lord knows many of us are trying hard to change. I think the problem is we don't know how to change. We don't know how to get rid of the anger and the pride and the lust and the, and the, and the weight of our past and, and our doubts and our insecurities and our false images. We don't, we don't know how. And so we, we pray harder and we read the Bible more and we go to more church services and, and we, we sing songs louder and we, we, we just do all these things, but we leave the same way. We strive and we pray, and we, 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 but the lust is still there. The, the doubt is still there. The insecurity, the boredom with life, the anger, the pride, the secret sin, it's all still there. And, we think we can change because we've embraced some misinformed ideas of what I'm going to continue to call over this series is false narratives, false stories. So you may not believe this. If you know my life, you probably should. I used to have a foul mouth and cussed horribly. And I remember when I, I stopped cussing completely. I was a financial advisor working for an investment firm, and I was asked to teach an adult Bible class on the fruit of the Spirit in the church. And we were learning the fruit of the Spirit and the characteristics, the nine traits of what it meant to live in the Spirit. But we're also learning what it means to live in the Spirit. And, and I, again, I had a foul mouth. And, and, and I remember coming convicted underneath this Bible study, underneath this series. And, and so I became convicted that I actually could watch my tongue a little bit. You know, I could watch my mouth. And so I would try hard that, that when I wanted to cuss, which was often, that I watch my mouth because I had a very bad temper. But I got to tell you, it just didn't work a lot. I mean, it worked sometimes, but sometimes it just didn't work. I mean, sometimes the word just came to my head. Next thing I know, it's like on the table, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to, it just, it's there. But I'll never forget one night specifically after going through this study and after praying and, and reading, after just communing with God and learning about God and, and my mind beginning to change about God and about my own life. 
I remember one night sitting there and something had happened and it just, man, I felt it boil inside of me. Any of you ever felt, I know you guys are never get angry, but, but any of you ever, ever felt like it just, it boiled inside of me and, and I heard the cuss word in my head. It was like swirling around, like this, this, this litany of words that, that I don't even know if they were words, but man, they were swirling around in my head. And I remember just, I remember like that break in the moment of, of thinking about the word and saying the word. There was space there. There was space, you understand? Like it didn't just come out, there was space there where I thought about the word and it was like God said, and he didn't hear an audible voice, but it was like something said, you don't have to say it, and guess what? It didn't just come out and I didn't have to say it, and so I didn't. And here's what I'm trying to say, I, I had to make some effort, but ultimately it was the Holy Spirit who did the work because he did something that I just didn't expect. And it was so subtle and it was so sudden, but yet it was so... Real. See, too often people decide to change something, they, they muster up their willpower and set out trying to change their behavior. And this nearly always fails. You see it with New Year's resolutions. The gym is packed the first two weeks of January. I'm there. I'm like in the, I'm like in the gear. I'm ready to go. I'm pumped up meeting people because I'm going to be at the gym. Mwah, mwah. Here's where I am. By January 21st, I'm like, give me my banana pudding back. I'm done with the gym. I got other things to do. I got to work. You see it happening, and we fail to keep these resolutions, and, and we think that we fail to keep these resolutions because we lose our willpower. And then we begin to see themselves, we begin to see ourselves as weak or failures, especially if we fail to keep a significant resolution. And so here's what I want to give you. I want to give you this. This is, this is kind of um, a bit clinical, but it's very important to the series. The reason we fail isn't because of our willpower, because the will has no power. And I, I we've got to get that in our heads. Before we leave today, the only thing you get outside of the gospel is that the will has no power. The will is simply the capacity, the human capacity to choose. That's all it is. It's the hinge upon which I make decisions. Should I wear glasses today? Regretfully, I chose to. The will became the capacity to choose, the hinge upon which the decision was made. If we could look inside our human bodies, we would not find a will. The will simply responds to the influences given to it. Think of it this way. A horse does not choose where to go, but goes in whatever direction the rider tells it. To go. The will is like the horse. Except instead of one rider, it has many different riders, many different influencers. Three primarily. The mind, the body, and the social settings. The mind and the body and the social settings. See, the mind is what we think and in turn creates emotions that lead to decisions that result in actions. Susie slaps me. She never has. She might have wanted to. She slaps me. I get angry. I want to slap John. Yeah, I would. <laughs> you crazy? Have you seen Alvin? I mean, you know. And that's what happens. It creates an emotion that leads to a thought, that leads to a decision, that leads to an action. See, then there's the body. This body is this, uh, this complex inner working of impulses that also influence the will. Most of our body runs without our help. But when the body has a need such as food or water, it expresses itself through the mind, through impulses, through feelings such as hunger and thirst. And then it alerts the mind to send a message to the will that says, get banana pudding now. That's my last banana pudding prefer- reference for the day. 
I had some this week, so it's really on my mind. And then there's the social settings. It's our social context. It's where we're highly influenced by the relationships in our lives, especially those with whom we hold in high regard. We often call this peer pressure. The mind, the body, and the social settings. This influences the will. These are the three prime influencers of the will. The will is neither strong or weak. Like a horse, it only has one task, to do whatever the influencers tell it to do. And so if we want to change, you're not going to muster it up through willpower. That's the point. You're not going to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and America's idea of rugged individualism and get after it and get her done. It's only going to happen. It's only going to happen when we modify the influencers in our life. We must pay attention to the influencers in our lives. What's going on with the, mo- the mind and get new ideas and what's going on with our body and adapt new practices and, and what's going on in our social settings and maybe even adapt new social settings. And this is where story comes into play. See, Jesus understood how people changed. That's why he called us to the gospel. Jesus knew that if he could give us a new narrative, a new story, that it would give us new ideas that would invite us to new practices, that would lead us to new social settings, that would lead us to transformation. So he used narrative to explain God and the world and what God was doing in it. Jesus would say things like this, the kingdom of God is like a man who found a buried treasure in a field. Or he would tell of God's love and forgiveness, not through facts and information. He would tell it through a story that we all are probably very familiar with. A man had two sons. And he would go on and tell the story of the prodigal son. See, Jesus taught in stories and narratives because he knew that that is what invites the heart and the mind to greatest change. Think about it. How do you speak of your present life? If somebody came up to you and said, George, tell me about your life. You're not going to give just facts. Well, I like blue. You would tell the story. Well, I was born in, my parents were, I worked here, I lived there, I did this, this happened, this is who I am. See, oftentimes through stories we relate to our past. My question is how do you remember significant events in your past? Not through facts, but through stories. We are story-driven creatures, and that's the one thing I'm trying to get through along with this willpower here, that we are story-driven creatures. We use facts, but we use them in the form of story. We may not remember the details, but we remember who was there and what was said and how we feel and, and communicate it in the form of stories. Raise your hand. Um, uh, yeah, let's just do this. Um, raise your hand if you can give two Beatitudes. Don't, don't give them. Just raise your hand if you can tell two Beatitudes. If you can't, just keep your hand down. No worries. All right. Raise your hand if you could somewhat tell the story of the prodigal son. There we go. That's exactly how we live our lives. We're story-driven creatures. And yet somehow we think that if I preach up here for 35 minutes and give you a bunch of facts, it's going to change it. Or give a few verses for you to memorize, and then all of a sudden we're going to change. Not happening. Some of you wished I only preached 20 minutes. Sometimes so do I. And we think that that would somehow invite us into change. I'm not jockeying for an extra 15 or 20. We change through story. We interpret life through story. So then there, we need to understand this. There are three narratives through which we live. I told you this is a teaching series. So There are three narratives through which we live. There are our family narratives, our family stories. These are the stories we learn from our families. We learn our ethics and our values from our families, not necessarily because our families teach them, but because our families tell stories that involve them and we pick them up from them. My dad was raised to be a hard worker, demonstrated he was a hard worker, and I just kind of came into that same thing. And then there are the cultural narratives. The cultural narratives are the stories we learn from a particular part of the country or the world in which we live. 
It's from these stories that we learn other values, such as what is important in life or who should be accepted or included. For instance, being raised in the, in the South, I had certain biases and certain opinions and views of people of color because of the way my culture sort of lived, and I had to come into that. For example, Americans do learn the value of rugged individualism because we learn from the stories of the revolution and the pioneers. And it changes our culture and becomes our narrative. But then there's also the religious narratives. What we hear from the pulpit and our Bible class teachers, what we're taught in church settings, we're shaped by these stories too. And these stories are, are, once they're in place, they're highly influential. And, And if not, they're not just highly influential, they might even determine our behavior without any regard to their accuracy or helpfulness. That's why we have racism in the world. A completely false narrative, completely false narrative. But it has determined behaviors. Because it still is a narrative that that many people have lived in and do not know a different way. For example, those of you who lived in the South, pre-civil rights era, most likely inherited a a bias against people of color, most likely. And those who grew up in the North, most likely didn't. And it wasn't until the narrative of racism changed until your bias was challenged. And then you were given a new story to live into. A story that said, all men are created in the image of God, and women too. And you began to live in that story, and it began to change how you treat others. It's about story. It's about narratives. We would do well to know our own stories. We didn't just pop out of somewhere in a vacuum. We became who we are because of what's influenced us. My point is that these stories often run or they ruin our lives. If we can identify these stories, church, within our mind, we can turn away from them, which Jesus said repent, and replace them with a new story, which is the gospel itself, and then we'll experience change. But here's what has to happen. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy 4. And this is how we'll close. So how do we really begin to really live into the story? How do we then adapt new narratives? How do we then stop living from willpower and start modifying the influencers of our lives, our mind, our body, our social settings? How do we live into a new narrative and deal with the old ones that have made us who we are? Well, Paul would say it like this. He said this to his young apprentice and this new pastor, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4, beginning verse 6. He said, if you point out these things, if you point these things out to the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. Listen to this. But have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit. So he's making a direct comparison to physical training. But godliness is beneficial in every way. Listen to this. Since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The gospel is a here and now story that changes forever. And so Paul says if you want to live into the gospel, then train yourself in godliness. You need some training. The reason many of us are not not changing or experiencing the life-giving work of God's Holy Spirit in our lives is because we are not training. We're not training in light of the gospel story. We're not learning to listen, to love, and to live by the power of God's spirit. We're not being spiritually formed. The problem is we are not training our hearts. We are letting all these other narratives and all these other things come into our hearts. We're not training our hearts. You don't just drift into holiness. 
we don't just drift into an overwhelming experience of God's Holy Spirit. I don't just fall into it. So I get, I get baptized, and, 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 and I think now that somehow I'm going to just completely change like the caterpillar to the butterfly just overnight, and I'm going to fly high with God, and I'm going to feel Him, and I'm going to know Him, and I'm going to commune with Him, and it just doesn't work that way without some sense of, we call it surrender, or yielding, or cooperation with the Holy Spirit's work, which takes training. Many of us think that going to church and reading the Bible and praying, that that's going to get it done. But that's something we may do every now and then. And for most of us, or some of us, I won't say most of us, silly, forgive me for that. For some of us, we do it only on occasion. Or for some of us, we only do it once a week. And so then when we, 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 we find that our, 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 our inability to change isn't a lack of direction or in a lack of desire, it's a, it's a lack of training. So then we just strive and strain and struggle. And we have miserable, joyless Christian lives that looks very similar to the culture around us. Last thing I want to say is when we speak of effort, or when we speak of training, in light of our faith, some of us swing either towards a work-based righteousness or we cry legalism. We've come to a misinformed understanding of grace, I think. We think that somehow we do fall into a life lived experiencing God, that we fall into sort of a with God life. And we think that it just happens. We think we have to do really nothing just go to change. And then there are some of us who move to the works-based righteousness who think then that it's all on us. I mean, we start praying 40 times a day. We start reading the Bible like cover to cover every three months. And we think somehow we're going to be made right with God. I wanted to give you this statement because I think it captures this. Grace is opposed to earning, but not effort. You will never earn your way to God. We will never earn our way to God. So let's get this out of the way. Jesus saved us. Saved E.D. past tense, done. On the cross. His work and his work alone. He did it. We received that through faith when we trusted. That's it. We're saved. We trusted with our whole lives. So we're made holy by the blood of Jesus, but then God calls us to learn what it means to live a holy life. That's effort. One's earning, one's effort. Grace is utterly opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. See, John Stott said, we do not drift into holiness, and I like that. See, Paul said that in Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13, So then, dear friends, my brothers, just as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. We're to work out our own salvation, which is what he said to Timothy, in training our godliness, training in godliness. But we understand that God is working within us in every way, directing even our desires. Here's the beauty. We can't do anything without the Holy Spirit. We can't even want without the Holy Spirit. So even then, the, the idea of training in godliness only comes as a gift of grace because the Holy Spirit gives it to us. So to live in grace means we learn how to yield and surrender and cooperate with the Holy Spirit's work and how He wants to renew our minds and form our hearts and transform our lives through the gospel story. In order to do that, we have to train. We have to examine what we think, which are the stories we tell ourselves. We have to examine how we're practicing and living out our faith, which is being formed through spiritual practices. And we have to examine who we're interacting with along the way, which is our social settings. Bottom line is I think we need to be taught a spirit-led, biblically-rooted, gospel-driven, grace-centered, reliable pattern of transformation. And so that is where we will be. 
Man, that was a long introduction. told Allison, my, my least favorite part about new series is our introductions. But it's just important that we lay this groundwork necessarily. We can't do it through our own willpower. We do it through the power of the Holy Spirit, but we learn how to train. So church, that's what we're going to do. So I want to give you this. I want to give you this this morning. Julie, if you'll go ahead and get to that other screen. I want to offer us something I've developed called uh, the, the Triangle of Transformation. The triangle of transformation. <coughs> if Paul said that transformation or change starts by renewing our minds, then, and he said that we must train ourselves in godliness, then, then, then we must learn how to transform by the power of the Spirit. So, so what we're going to do is we're going to say that the triangle is going to be made up primarily of the gospel story. That is going to be the essence of, of our journey, is that the triangle is going to be made up of this gospel story. Because this is where we orient our lives around Jesus. We orient our minds and everything that we are around this story. The story informs us, encapsulates us, because it is our story. God's story is our story. And so we learn how to live in this story. But then we must learn how to listen to God. We must learn how to listen to God, how to commune with God. And this learning how to listen with God becomes our journey inward. It will become our journey inward. It's where we sit with God and we, we learn how to commune with God and meditate with God and, and listen to God through prayer and through the Word. And it becomes our, our journey inward. And it becomes one that happens only with God because of God. And so this is our journey inward. But then we just can't stop there, which is where sometimes we have a tendency to stop. We, we have to learn what it means to truly love as people who have listened to God. And so this becomes our journey outward. This will become our journey outward. This has to do with learning what it means to truly love others to be on mission with God because of this gospel story and because we spend time with God, we learn how to journey outward into the world and love others. And then we just simply learn how to live this gospel life. And we learn how to live it, though. We learn how to live it together. We learn how to live it together. And this has everything to do with the church. This has to happen for us. But there has to be something at the center. And the something at the center is what gives this whole effort, gives this whole training experience life and breadth and meaning without the Holy Spirit at the heart of it. We're just in our own efforts. So the Holy Spirit must be at the center giving us power to live this life. This is what we're going to call our Triangle of Transformation. We're going to refer to this very, very often in our series together. Please come to know this. Come to live in this. Come to experience this. And join us in the journey. If you're visiting here, if you're visiting here, Julie, you can go back to it. You can go back to that screen. If you're visiting here, then this is where we're going to be for the next while. Because at the end of the day, what matters most 
is that we come to know Jesus. And not just come to know Jesus, but know Jesus in the way the Bible says know Jesus, and that is to live with him, to live a with God life. So no matter where you've been and no matter what stories you bring, God wants to give you a new story. It's a story that involves all of your other stories. It's a story that will redeem your bad stories and your broken stories and give your broken stories meaning and purpose. It doesn't just simply dismiss them. It gives them redemption. But it means that you and I are no longer the product of our past. We're no longer lost in our sin. We're no longer guilty of our sin and lost and enslaved to our death because of the gospel. If you don't know Jesus, it all starts and begins and ends with him. Don't leave not knowing the one who has set you free, who knows you best and loves you most. Let's pray.